mean, that's cool. still terrifying to me, though. You're all running the same version of the code, but the data may be different under the hood. Have fun. <laughs> the way you said that was great. <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> well, good luck, everybody. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Vickery. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. Hey, Chris, welcome back from vacation. Thank you. It's good to be back. Uh, it's fine to be back is my official summary. Vacation's good and uh, it was a very enjoyable vacation, but it's also nice to get back into the swing of things and routines and all of that and uh, yeah, it's been a good week. So thank you for the welcome back. Yeah, I'm with you. Vacation is lovely. Uh, what all did y'all get into? Or did you go anywhere? Stay home? We did uh, go on a trip. We went up to Portland, Maine, got a COVID test just before to try and you know prep for that. And uh, thankfully, some of our friends up there, Maine seems to have access to rapid tests, which is interesting. And so we were able to actually see friends in still precaution and still sort of like more outdoor where we could and all of those sort of things, but have a little bit more normalcy and see folks that we haven't seen in a while. So that was really lovely. Uh, and otherwise, just a really relaxed week. Yeah, very enjoyable. Very little coding, which is good. Sometimes I need to get away from the keyboard. Not 100%, to be clear. That's not who I am. But uh, some, more than normal. So, Yeah, the rapid tests are really nice. I'm very excited because I'm starting to know people that are getting vaccinated as well, which is really exciting. So like my parents received their first vaccine shot and will then go back for their second. So that's just super exciting that we're finally getting people to be vaccinated against COVID and we can start to see people uh, more safely. Yeah, absolutely. It is It is starting to feel a bit different, but, uh, you know, maintain caution and all of those sort of things. Uh, but in more tech-specific ideas, is interesting. I was working on something just before I left, and it was, uh, I think I talked about it in the most recent episode, about the energy right before you go on vacation, where you're wrapping things up and trying to clean things and hand it off and make sure you're not, you know, holding the ball on anything. There was a particular new feature that I was working on, building out a couple new models, API endpoints, etc., within uh, the app that I'm working on. And there was something right at the end that sort of caught me. And then I had to sort of unfortunately leave it as like, I'm so sorry, but here's the summary. This doesn't quite work and I don't fully understand the ramifications. Here's my best understanding of it. Feel free to run with it or I'm happy to pick it back up when I come back. And so I did end up picking it back up, but we did have to move away from it. And so the fundamental thing at play was we have in this application a combination of IDs and UUIDs for a number of the records. So the ID is the normal Rails integer column that acts as the primary key in the database. But then the mobile apps that we're working with, they prefer a UUID column. And in some cases, they are generating content on the client. So when a user interacts in some way with this mobile app, the record of that interaction is created on the client with a generated UUID sent up to the server, and then the server is persisting that. So we're also then creating our ID, integer ID, primary key, but we're storing their UUID. And so that distinction between two different unique identifiers for a given record is something that we've all sort of looked at at various points, been like, that doesn't seem great. And then more generally, I've sort of been intrigued by the idea of UUIDs as a better primary key overall. Uh, there was an outage that Basecamp had uh, at this point, I think it was a year or two back. But I think if I remember correctly, they ran out of the integers that they like whatever size integer big int, I think is the default. And I forget what size that goes up to, but they overflowed and caused a significant outage and had to like work around that. And it was one of those things that it just kind of got away from them. 
And so the idea of using UUIDs, because it's a bigger space, like basically it's unlimited is essentially the way you would think of it. And it has the ability for clients to generate it. It has the obscuring aspect where if you are slash users slash 23, you have a pretty good guess that there were about 23 users in the system when you joined. Whereas a UUID completely hides any sort of sequential information. So there's a bunch of good side effects as far as I understand them to UUIDs. And so I was like, oh, cool, I'm going to do the smart thing here. I'm going to, for these new records, I'm going to get ahead of this problem. And our ID column is going to be of type UUID. This should solve everything. Rails supports this. This is a great little feature. But uh, mostly everything worked. The generating the tables worked. Actually having UUID type IDs in Postgres, that totally worked. Rails, everything was great with the exception of polymorphism. And the particular app that I'm working in has a lot of polymorphic associations. So in particular, within this application, there's different types of content and a user can favorite different types of content. So let's say this is upcase is a pretty good proxy for what I'm talking about. On upcase, there are exercises and flashcards and videos and courses, and these are each different types of content. So we actually, we don't have this feature on upcase, but it would be relatively straightforward to add the idea of being able to favorite any of those different pieces of content. So then the favorite model would have its own ID and associate to a user, so references a user, and then it would have a polymorphic content association. And so in the database, we would store it as content ID and content type. The problem comes in that that content ID column is going to be of type integer by default using older Rails and using you know the normal things. So suddenly you can't mix and match records that have an ID of type integer and records that have an ID of type UUID. So that was the first thing I ran into. That wasn't great. So backed up a little bit, did some research, and there were some recommendations on the internet to switch to using a string as the storage for that column. So instead of it being an integer, it's now a string because UUIDs are sort of string-ish. And IDs, you can coerce an integer into a string. Rails certainly does that all over the place because they're coming in as string params anyway. I felt very uncomfortable with this, but I tried it and it sort of worked. But eventually I ran into enough incompatibilities and ways that Rails wasn't traversing the associations correctly. And like I said, I kind of had to leave it as like, ah, unfortunately, although everything else worked, this polymorphic stuff over here isn't working. I'm not super sure why. Sorry. And then when I came back, there was a determination to move away from that. The other developer had actually done the work to switch back to normal ID. So we have an ID and a UUID column again. And I'm very unhappy that that's where we got to. And I'm pretty sure this is a solvable problem. But... It was an unfortunate failure to launch in, I know, I'll just fix it. We'll have one standard to rule them all. But yeah, have you worked with UUIDs in Rails? I have, but typically when I've worked with UUIDs, it's from the beginning. So I'm introducing a new table and I recognize that we want to use a UUID type as the primary key instead of an integer. So I've started from the beginning, but I haven't tried this, what sounds like you're trying to switch. Like, were you actually trying to remove the ID integer column and then use just a UUID? Were you trying to switch the type underneath and then update those IDs? What did that look like? Yeah, uh, good question. I was introducing new models, and so those new models would start with their table having a UUID primary key. Uh, I think trying to change any of the existing ones would be a little too difficult, so I wasn't approaching that. Although, in theory, if this all worked, maybe that would have been something we would have looked into down the road to try and sort of unify the app. But yeah, this was just about we're introducing new models rather than having the two differing unique identifiers on that table. Let's just have the one. It'll be a called ID, but it'll have UUID type. 
But then the thing that we were trying to change was this other favorite record. There's actually a handful of records in the system that use polymorphic associations. So you can favorite things and you can tag things and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those records that are sort of joining between a user and other stuff, they had a content ID, which was of type integer. And now that wouldn't work with these new UUID tables. And so tried to drop it to string, didn't quite work. Overall, I think what would be great and one of the takeaways I'm having is if I'm starting a new Rails app, I think I want to just go UUIDs for everything from the beginning because it does have this sort of switching cost and pain. Maybe there's a more straightforward way to do it. But yeah, definitely like I think that's my takeaway here. And I think I'm otherwise maybe a little bit stuck. Yeah, that that makes more sense in terms of not trying to replace that existing foreign key with like a UUID, but do it for new models that are being introduced into the system. For the table that is storing that polymorphic association information, just to make sure I understand, so it has an ID column and it's going to have a UUID? Like, are you trying to have it reference the older models as well or just the newer ones? Because I'm thinking through if you're going to pursue like all new tables that you're introducing are always going to use the UUID as like polymorphism just going to be broken for you. I would imagine it's not, but it's kind of sounding like it is. Uh, yes. To clarify, those tables that are joining and have that polymorphic association, the key is just that whatever the ID column for the associated polymorphic thing. So in this case, let's say it's content underscore ID. If everything in the system uses UUIDs, then that content underscore ID would also be of type UUID, and then everything would work. But the problem that I have is I now exist in a world where some models would have their ID be integer, some models would have their ID be UUIDs, and I'm trying to now polymorphically join to tables you know, with differing primary key types, and that doesn't work, or at least not well. Switching to string maybe solves it, but uh, I don't like that. Broadly, also, this sort of pushes on one of the things that I've continually struggled with, which is polymorphic associations and how to model them in the database. And I've never been happy with the existing solution in Rails because it breaks foreign key integrity. Like I can say that this thing's got a content ID, but Postgres is not constraining that in the way that a normal association would, where it would say, oh, there's a foreign key. Let me make sure that record actually exists. You can't have an invalid representation here. I really want that for polymorphic associations, but we can't have it. There's a really great article that I read recently on the HashRocket blog that covered different approaches to modeling polymorphic associations at the database level. It was really interesting. It talked about all of the different trade-offs of data integrity versus complexity versus having multiple tables. And it's really great. We'll include that in the show notes. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have a clear answer of like, oh, do this and it's great and everything will be wonderful. So I'm still sad, but it was interesting. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense that Rails was having trouble in terms of trying to switch between that UUID column and the ID. So I'm relieved that it at least that's the problem that you ran into is trying to switch between those two column types versus if you just started off with UUID, then this would have been fine. Or if you just have that consistent column type, then it would have been fine. Yeah, that article sounds great. Isn't that tough where it's like, it's a really good article, but it's like, what's the answer? It's tough that I don't think there's a good answer out there. Like I would love for Postgres to support the thing that we have in Rails, not specifically the thing that we have in Rails. I would be perfectly fine if there were a slightly different variant, but allowed us to model these sort of more dynamic relationships, but still do foreign key integrity. Like the idea of a composite foreign key. We have composite primary keys. We have composite indexes. Could we have a composite foreign key? And then it's the table name and the primary key of that table. And that's the association. Like that could even be a column type in Postgres because you can have, I feel like Postgres can do this for me. I can't do it for me. 
I need Postgres to get fancier. And I don't know of solutions to this in other databases, but I would be sort of intrigued. Like I think of Postgres as sort of the gold standard, but there's always different trade-offs. And I would be really interested, is there a database system out there that actually just handles this extremely well? But yeah, it's rough. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm really intrigued in that as well, because I've also felt that pain. But like you, I pursue the same approach that I have now in terms of trading off the accuracy and complexity. And that's also just where I'm at. I don't have a better solution yet. Yeah, as always here on the bike shed, uh, it depends. And it's all about making the pragmatic trade offs. But yeah, that's that's some of my adventure in the land of UUIDs. If any, anyone out there uh, has better answers to either UUID adventures in Rails or polymorphic associations, I would love to hear about them. But otherwise, what's up in your world? Oh, let's see where to begin. I have uh, a number of fun little topics that I would love to chat about today. The first one being about puppy life, because that is just the the life that I am living right now. And I am learning so much about dog behavior. And for anyone that has missed the previous episode, my husband and I recently adopted a dog. His name is Utah. He is six months old. He's a puppy and he's big. He's about 50 pounds. So having manners is really important. And I'm learning how much he loves to chew and destroy toys. Like, even the toys that are built to last, like he just goes through them very quickly. His toy destruction output is impressive. And so I started calling him my 10X puppy because, I mean, when he's destroying a toy, he rarely asks for help. He can definitely destroy a toy in four to six hours, and he knows exactly where to find each toy in the house. And he doesn't take responsibility for his messes. So he's my little 10X puppy. That's fantastic. I thought you would enjoy that. <laughs> I loved that. <laughs> So that's on the personal update, but he's he's doing really well. We have started some doggy behavior training and he's um he's adjusting because we've only had him for about four weeks. So he's getting acquainted to us and us with him. On a more technical note, last time we chatted, I mentioned how Postgres 11 will no longer rewrite a table when adding a column with a non-volatile default value, which is delightful. And this week, I discovered that Rails 6.1 has introduced a method that makes it easier and safer to add and drop columns. So the keyword there being safely, because if you add a column that already exists, then the migration is going to error and you'll see a message that states that the column already exists. And then the same is true. If you attempt to remove a column, then you're going to see a similar error that you're trying to remove a column that does not exist. So it's pretty rare that I'm in that situation that I'm attempting to alter a column that may or may not exist because typically I, I know what's there and what migrations have been deployed. But when I do have that situation and I'm not sure then previous to Rails 6.1, there is a very helpful active record predicate method called column exist, which will then check to see if the column exists for a given table. And so that way you can have an if statement your migration might look like if column exists for table movies, column title, then remove column for table movies and column title. In Rails 6.1, Eileen Yushatel introduced a change that adds support for a parameter called if exist and if not exist. So both of those options will slightly ignore the migration if the remove column or the add column results in an error. So if you're trying to remove or add a column that's not actually there, then it's just going to silently ignore that request and carry on. And it's just, it's so delightful. Like I feel like the last couple of weeks have been great in terms of finding these new delightful bits and making it easier to add and remove columns. That's interesting. I, I think I'd seen something about if exists support for adding or dropping an index. So I wonder if it's a little bit broader and if it's the same functionality, but I did not realize that there was also that for adding and dropping columns. 
which is on the one hand really wonderful and i imagine it comes out of real need and, and folks out there you know there's been enough requests and they wanted to sort of smooth this out I am intrigued, though, because like you, this doesn't come up that much. Like, I'm trying to think through how you get into this situation. And I think the mechanism is someone manually altered the database. And now you're trying to run a migration, but that migration may or may not run into a column. But is there some other mechanism as to how this is happening? Because I'm very rarely actually saying Postgres DDL commands directly like, hey, Postgres, do this thing. I'm like, no, 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 I always go through the migrations. But I wonder, is that is that rare? Is there something else going on there that could account for these? Yeah, I'm glad you commented on that because as you mentioned, like it is really rare to be in the situation. So I can walk through the situation that I was in that I found this useful. So I'm working with an application where we have a number of Postgres instances and we are deploying the application to all those different applications that have their own Postgres instance. And specifically, I was using, I think in the last time we were chatting, I was adding a column that was acting as a feature flag. So it was a Boolean column that then we want to be able to turn something on or off very quickly. So we deployed that to staging and tested it. We deployed it to one application because we essentially wanted to load test this new index that we had added or this new locking behavior that we had added. And we want to verify that everything worked. And if that worked well, we could roll it out to everyone else. But that deploy didn't make it to all the other applications because we were testing on just that one. So I was proceeding to add a change that was then going to drop that column because we don't actually need to add it since we just proven that this worked. We didn't feel the need to deploy that to everything else. Just go ahead and drop it. But in deploying that change, it was going to run on all the other applications that didn't have that added column. So I wanted to very safely say, hey, if we added this column to your Postgres instance, then please go ahead and remove it. But otherwise, just ignore it because this isn't for you. So it is a rare instance, but that was the particular scenario where this was very useful for me. Got it. That makes sense. I, I think I've actually run into similar things where I'll deploy in-work changes to a staging environment. And now they have a slightly different version of the database. But I think my typical solve for that is just to copy production over to staging again and sort of clobber it away. But if you have multiple truly production-like or like true production instances, then I can see how there is the ability for there to be some drift in them. Although, as I think about it, there there is a certain amount of, is this nicety in Rails syntax making it easier to do a thing that is highly complicated or causes these differences in production-like environments? And it, could we not do that fundamentally? Always are going to be reasons and things, but it, it's one of those where like, huh, but how did we get into this situation? And should we take a look at that more pointedly and try and say, like, should we try and avoid that? Or is this just a thing that's going to happen? Is it a necessity of doing business? And which I totally can see that happening when you have truly distinct deployments. But it's just kind of interesting. Yeah, I'm with you. I think in this case, it does fall within, it is necessary to a degree, but we are restructuring how the deployments work and then how we're hosting the different applications. But we do want each application to have its own Postgres instance to essentially ensure that we have multi-tenancy, not within just one Postgres database. We're not taking that approach, but we have the different Postgres databases. So that way, if you are a user of one application or an admin of one application, you do not have access to the data in the other application. But then to circle back, we are looking for ways to simplify that because right now deployment is tough because right now we are deploying to, gosh, I don't know, it's above 10 applications. I don't know the exact number. So we are reassessing our architecture and then how we want to handle those deploys. So I'll have some updates once we decide and where we're headed there and then what has and hasn't worked for us. And now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is leading-edge application performance monitoring designed to help developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. 
With a developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, you can quickly pinpoint and resolve performance abnormalities, like N plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat. Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails let you rest easy knowing Scout's on watch and resolving performance issues before your customers ever see them. Give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial by visiting and experience firsthand why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Bike Shed listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash bikeshed. That's scoutapm.com slash, all one word, B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. Thanks again to Scout for sponsoring today's episode of the Bike Shed. Looking for areas where we can have those types of conversations around architecture and anything else regarding deployments and releases, we recently added one of the newer GitHub features that's called GitHub Discussions. So then we can have one consolidated place to have those discussions and ask questions. And it's just something new that I haven't used before. And so far, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Like, it feels like GitHub has done a really nice job. And I can see where this space is very helpful. I do have some concerns in terms of where you have discussions in too many places. Like, this feels like that classic problem of, like, we want to talk. Where do we talk? Do we talk in Slack? Do we talk in a PR, in an issue, and in Basecamp, on a wiki, like any of those places? And this is adding one more place to have a discussion. But for our current team structure, this feels right because of this one place that all of us can come together and have access to. And then we can reference code, which is really helpful. And the way GitHub has positioned GitHub discussion seems really nice. So it's very, it seems to be very specific towards like open source, where you want your community to be able to reach out and ask questions and share ideas with you that aren't necessarily like, I have an issue or here's a change, but I just have an idea and I'd like a space to talk about that. So it's it's a pretty neat feature. Have you experienced GitHub discussions yet? I've only experienced it in terms of a handful of open source projects that have added it. In particular, Inertia.js is the one that I'm thinking of. They recently added that to the mono repo that they have, which is interesting. So a GitHub discussions installation, is that associated with a single repo or can it be org wide? Like where does it live in terms of the GitHub object model? It is specific to the repo. So it's not org just across like all of the organization, but is specific to a repo, which I hadn't really considered that till now, but I like that because it makes the conversation very specific to that application versus if it were just org wide, I feel like there'd be a lot more noise and it'd be harder to sift through. Yep, that totally makes sense. It's interesting. I, I do kind of think of these things as more org wide in some cases, but I think often the mode that I've seen that happen in is have sort of a like processes repo And that is a markdown document or set of documents that describe this is how we work. This is how we do deployments, et cetera, like a run book or things like that. And then the conversations around it can naturally be captured in either issues or pull requests against that repository. But like you said, there's something different about issues and pull requests as opposed to like, hey, I just want to talk a little bit, like just throwing this out there. And particularly in open source, I think the discussions functionality makes a ton of sense to sort of differentiate that, say there are issues, there are pull requests, there's also this other thing of discussions, it's more general. And I'm, I'm really interested to hear more as you work with that and how you find it within the context of a single repository and working with a team and, and all of that. Like, does it end up being a really useful solve there? Or I'd be really interested in the like constraint that it is associated with a single repo does that feel over constraining over time or is that actually super useful but like you said just the question of like there's so many different places to put stuff and now there's one more but maybe this is the one that solves it, solves it for everything yeah I'll certainly keep that in mind as we're using github discussions more one of the things that i really appreciated as a person who was introducing github discussions to our project 
they shared in Slack first and said, hey, I'm interested in turning this on because there are some things that I think that we could talk about and I want us to have a space to talk about it that's not Slack, something that people can respond to and we won't lose track of. But they also shared the idea of like, but I don't want to introduce too many spaces of where we no longer know where to look for important discussions. So that felt like a very nice introduction of like, hey, we are adding one more space, but we as a team are on board with that and we're going to give it a try. Always with the idea of like, if this doesn't work, then we'll just remove it and then we'll try a different strategy. I'm also a huge fan of those repos that you just mentioned that are either like process or best practices, anything that's team focused and centric that helps onboard and document processes that are important to the team. But I feel like there are, and I think this is what you were alluding to, there are these two different conversations. There's one that we feel like we can make a change and we can make it more concrete. And that feels great to capture in terms of GitHub and saying, I can make a change. I can make this final. It's either related to code and I want someone to review it. It's an RFP. It's an issue. It's going to that process repo. But then there's the more, I have an idea and I I don't have anything to tie it to yet, but this is just something that I'm interested in. And someone added a great example of that this week where they added a refactoring idea. So with discussions, you can have different categories. So we have ideas, Q&A, and releases. And someone added to the Q&A, they were like, I think this is a refactor that's worth pursuing. But before I invest more time into it, I just want to see what other people know. Because right now, everybody on the team has specific knowledge of the application. And so we're trying to constantly work together to make sure that our assumptions align with the person who's more skilled in that area. So they're like, I think this is a good refactoring idea, but I want to run it past others who may have more knowledge about this area of the application. And that felt great. I loved that idea that someone could say, I have a refactoring idea, but I don't want to invest the time just yet, or I want to validate my assumptions before I pursue this refactoring. So those types of conversations are really pulling me into GitHub discussions, because if you have an idea, but you can't really tie it to anything concrete, then discussions feels like a great place for that. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And that specific example, that differentiating thing, like this thing didn't quite fit in any of the buckets that we had is really interesting. So I can totally see how that would push you in the direction of discussions. And again, very interested to hear how that goes. Although I am interested that you described how the person who was introducing it framed it as an experiment. And this is one of the things that I absolutely love about ThoughtBot is the culture of experimentation and purposeful improvement. But I I do have to ask the question, where are you tracking the experiment? What system (laughs) of record has that conversation? Uh, In our hearts. (laughs) Uh. Good question. Uh, Nowhere at the moment, other than maybe we'll take a poll in a while. It's, It's one of those things that feels like if we start to feel pain or people start to surface, retro feels like a really good space for this in terms where we are not tracking it concretely somewhere. But in retro, if people start to say, I'm having trouble finding stuff, or I find discussions unhelpful, then that would feel like the perfect place to say, okay, well, let's reassess. And then maybe this is something that we do away with and replace with something else. One of those no news is good news kind of situations. Yeah, that makes sense. I have seen plenty of times where there is like a formal structure. I was being a bit snarky in my question, but there's also the half sincere part of it where I have seen those examples where there are new process things that are being introduced and there is an associated discussion tracking it as an experiment. Often, again, that would be like a PR to a repo, but it's a PR that's in WIP or is gathering conversation of like, we're trying this thing. Here's the timeline. Here's the you know hypothesis and the questions. And here's how we will determine success or failure of this thing. But being purposeful about like, we don't just keep adopting new tools. And then we're sort of like slowly just gathering every possible communication tool on the internet. It's like, oh, yeah, we um we use all of them. It's it's all is the answer. But making sure that it's like, well, we tried this one out. And actually, yeah, now that you mention it, we meant to come back to this and either decide yes or no. And so I find that slightly more purposeful experimentation framework to be interesting, but also a little bit of overhead. And again, where do you track it? And 
and also the idea that like retro seems like a really great one but one of the things that i've often seen with retro is difficulty in having continuity across retros so like people keep saying things but we never actually look back at the old ones or do the to-dos that we assign to ourselves at the end of them or say that like here's this thing we want to try something new and now a month later because it's going to take a while to try it out how do we make sure a month later we actually come back and talk about it these are hard things I feel this is small but important. Uh, you don't look back at previous retros? I do, but often I've been on teams where they don't. Gotcha. Okay. I think it's absolutely critical to look back. And I also like the idea of when you have the to-do list, the action items that are coming out of retro, look at those that stand up every morning together and say like, hey, are we doing these things? Because they should be. we should like be burning these down between this and next retro, ideally. So I want even more continuity. That's just me. Oh, good point. Yeah, I'd forgotten that we did that on a previous team where if we had those to do action items, we would put them in a ticket in Trello, and then we would put it at the top of the board. And it was a ticket that just didn't move for the full sprint. But it was a nice reminder, because we would walk the board as part of our morning sync. So each time we were going through, we would see it and we'd say, is everybody doing this? How's it going? And it was a, a nice reminder. But I hadn't really tied those two together in the way that you just stated. But it is really helpful. I love the concern in your voice, though. You're like, you don't look back at previous retros? I thought I knew you. I got a little worried. (laughs) But I appreciate you keeping me honest in terms of how we are tracking our experiments. Because I'm with you. That's that's really important. And it's also just a nice way to then go back and validate if it was good or if it's something that we should move on from. But that's some of the adventures in my world. How about you? Uh, Just a small thing, but I've been working with a new client lately, and a lot of our communication is very async, so there's a lot of Trello back and forth. But then there's also, I'll be working on new features, and there's like, it's early enough in a project where I'll make a PR that actually changes a bunch of different things or changes a workflow somewhat fundamentally. And so I've been in the habit now of recording videos to sort of deliver that feature. And so quick walk through two to three minutes of here's what it looks like. You go here, you click on this, you fill in this search box, et cetera, et cetera. But I found that that process was kind of painful. I've done GIF recordings in the past, which I've used Giphy Capture, I think is the one that I'm using now, which is fine. It does that job. And now that GitHub allows me to upload MP4 or MOV files instead of just .gif files the world is better because lower file size and all those lovely things but occasionally there are the longer ones or ones where i want to have voiceover so i'm actually talking through as i'm explaining i did this here's what it looks like here's trade-offs etc i have a little bit more context there and so i've been trying out a new tool which is called loom many folks are probably familiar with it i think it's pretty popular at this point but this was my first experience with it and it is fantastic makes the whole screen recording thing super easy it has a bunch of features like it's very easy to tell it just look at this window on the screen and it does that by sort of clipping the frame that it's recording but that's just a wonderful feature that's built in it's very easy to control which audio thing and then at the end it just sort of uploads it to your account and then you can go in and annotate and do just it made everything about the process super straightforward and made that now a thing that used to be a little bit difficult or a little bit sort of finicky and maybe not worth the effort in the past now i've lowered the bar of effort on that such that this is an easy form of communication and the feedback that i've gotten when i've delivered these is just like this is great also thank you so much for the video because that was a bunch of stuff that i probably wouldn't have understood in a trello comment or we would have had a back and forth and this made it so much easier so i really love loom and then more generally i've just been sort of leaning into the theme of really purposeful communication knowing that i have all this context in my head about a thing how can i 
make it as easy as possible for the other person on the other side receiving this information to receive it and run with it. So like every email that I'm writing of late, I'm going back and either breaking things out into bulleted lists or highlighting paragraphs or like highlighting and bolding words, trying to be clear about like if there is a thing that I want this person to do, making that very clear and actionable. And there's a certain version of it where it's like, oh, I'm, I'm putting in all this effort for someone else. But I think of this as a deeply selfish act, because in theory, every time I'm sending one of these, I want someone to do something for me, even if that thing is like go through an acceptance flow and tell me, yeah, you did a great job or boo, terrible, try again. But I still want like I want that back and forth to be as efficient as possible. So yeah, a bunch of different tactics that I've been playing with. But Loom has been really great. Using block quotes within Trello and the markdown is one that I've been leaning on a lot. So someone will ask a couple questions and doing a block quote of their question and then the response below that block quote of the next question response below that. Just a handful of tricks that have been really useful in structuring it. And I've gotten very nice feedback from folks like saying thank you for making a bunch of information easier to digest and easier to respond to. And I was like, you're welcome. It was selfish in a way. <laughs> I now really want a, a boo try again button on Trello or somewhere. I would never push it <laughs> except for myself, <laughs> but that's delightful. I also like how you're describing it as more selfish because there is a lot of personal gain from this. It's clear in terms of what you're looking for. That is that purposeful communication. I love that so, so much. But I also think it is amazing for the other person because you are trying to make it very easy for them. Like we've talked about this before, like making it easy to say yes to the PR. It's probably like a show. It's like yes to the dress, but here we're saying yes to the PR. And we want to make that as easy as possible for folks. And this just fits so well with that and all the other types of communication that we have. So I, I think that's amazing. I have not heard of Loom, so I'm definitely going to check it out. Yeah, it's definitely in the camp of like, I'm reframing what might be selfless as selfish, but really they're like, you know, Phoebe Buffet did a search and there there are no truly selfless acts. So uh, in that sense, yes. But also the like, this is totally worth my effort because I'm getting a strong return on this investment of a little extra time. It's again, we've talked about this before, but the idea of like refactoring tickets were largely in the camp that let's not do that and let's do the work now because I'm in context. I have all the information. When I'm authoring content, I have all the information. I know the important bits. I know what to highlight. So if I can spend one to two extra minutes doing that work and making this thing easier for the other person to see it in exactly the shape that I have in my head, that is totally worth it for me. And so it's one of those rare things in my mind where it's so worth that little extra effort to trade off. And I think the parallel there to not deferring refactoring work or things like that is really interesting. I think there's a fabulous list here of important items to do while you have full context. And I think it's some of the ones you just said, like PRs, refactoring, uh, Trello tickets is the other big one that you and I have talked about and trying to, even if it's very short and it could even feel a little sloppy in terms of we're grabbing that information and saving it for later. That resonates with me so much of do the thing while you have the context, even if it's not polished, but save what you have for now. But then when you are asking somebody to do something for you, then I, I would advocate for a bit more polish or at least more purpose behind how you're going to ask that person and make it clear what it is that you're asking them for. Actually, I really like the way you're backing out and reframing the bigger conversation, the, like the context and, and leaning into that. There's actually a really interesting thing I saw on Twitter. I think it was today. Charity Majors from Honeycomb. She talks a lot about continuous integration, continuous deployment and the values of them and how there's so much utility and, and really pushes that idea so strongly. And it's something that's been really informing my thoughts and, and sort of pushing me in that direction. But the thing that she said today was, 
having continuous deployment where the minute you hit merge, there is at most 15 minutes before that thing gets out into production, just directly to production is so beneficial. And one of the many reasons that she pushes for it is the idea that at that moment when you're hitting merge, it's right after you're finishing up this work, you have all that context as to all of the different technical aspects that came together to make this feature. And so if something's going to blow up, that's actually the perfect time because you've got all that context loaded up rather than if your work gets queued up and gets deployed later in the week after a QA cycle and suddenly you've forgotten everything and then there's a bug that actually makes it out of production and now you have to fix it, you got to rebuild all that context. So it was an interesting framing on continuous deployment that I hadn't thought about. But again, it sort of aligned with these ideas of doing things when you have the context, putting in that little extra effort, or trying to take advantage of the context that you have when you've built it up. And so I really loved that. And once more, I'm now inspired to try and go for continuous deployment. Yeah, I love that. That makes so much sense to me. But yeah, with that, I think that covers everything on my mind. So uh, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or review in iTunes as it helps other people find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. 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 <laughs>